have this thing that says police are mean. I don't want police in my world. What what is the thing you're holding? I'm holding my sign. And what did you make that sign for? For the protest. For the protest? What were we protesting? We were protesting against police. That's right, yeah. Read your sign again. Police are mean. I don't want police in my world. I I am six. And I don't want police in my world. And you are six years old and you already know you don't want police in your world. Yes, I don't want police in my world. Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. On June 9th, the New York State Legislature passed legislation that will repeal Law 50A, which has allowed law enforcement to prevent the public from seeing misconduct records. After Governor Cuomo signs the legislation, police disciplinary records will be disclosed publicly. According to the Innocence Project, this legislation will, quote, increase systemic accountability through transparency and take New York one step forward in addressing police violence, end quote. The Innocence Project went on to say that this development will bring some justice to a system that previously prevented it, but it's only one ingredient in authentic accountability. It took eight years for a grassroots advocacy campaign to repeal 50A. On hearing the news of the new legislation, Shabaka Shakur, who spent 26 years in prison based on fabricated evidence from a now-retired New York detective, stated, quote, It's amazing what we had to go through just to get politicians to give us some type of relief. This is all common sense. It should have been passed a long time ago, end quote. Reports from inmates at Indiana Women's Prison describe arbitrary orders of lockdown without adequate air, ice, or sprinkler systems in hand-locked cells. Inmates are worried about serious fire hazards due to the heat, electrical issues, and manually secured cells with only one set of keys issued per unit. Complaints have led to retaliation in the form of locking inmates in cells each shift, cells which are already known to be stuck shut for hours at a time. The inmates are without air circulation or ventilation in at least 85 degree temperatures, sharing their cells with two to four people. A corrections officer reportedly passed out from heat exhaustion, even with access to an industrial fan intended to circulate air around the hallways and day room, but used for the desk on account of poor conditions and risk. Preventative measures for the transmission of COVID-19 are shockingly inadequate, as described by an inmate who says, quote, we are still curtailed access to the space of the unit, but required to be around the entire unit three times a day if we want to eat. Workers must operate regardless of vulnerability or social distancing, yet we can't shower or use restroom as needed in our non-work time because of the pretend enforcement of social distancing." End quote. The Indiana Department of Corrections, or IDOC, 
has instituted a policy on COVID-19 requiring high-risk and medium-risk staff members to work. This policy might well increase the spread of the disease in prisons. The Center for Disease Control guidelines for prisons state that staff should self-quarantine for 14 days after coming in close contact with an infected person. However, since mid-April, the IDOC has required prison staff without symptoms to work, even if they live with someone who tests positive for the disease. Health professionals claim the policy could allow staff to introduce the coronavirus into prisons. Prisoners, living in overcrowded quarters, are highly susceptible to the disease because the facilities prevent inmates from physical distancing, sheltering in place, and accessing the proper hygiene products. Since the pandemic started spreading in Indiana prisons, inmates have reported that prison employees weren't always following the protocols to prevent the spread of the infection. Prisoners report that inmates with COVID-19 symptoms aren't always isolated from asymptomatic inmates, even after they implore staff for medical help. Earlier this week, a New Jersey prison guard participated in a racist counter-protest against Black Lives Matter demonstrators. Along with his friends, he mockingly reenacted George Floyd's murder by police officers. The New Jersey Department of Corrections was forced to suspend him from his job at Bayside State Prison in response to popular outrage. Yesterday was June 11th, Day of International Solidarity with Marius Mason and all long-term anarchist prisoners. Marius usually writes a statement, but between quarantine and lockdown, he couldn't make a statement this year. Mo, who provides free legal assistance to Marius, wrote this statement on behalf of Marius and his support committee. The other day, when I spoke to Marius on the phone, he was dealing with worries ranging from uncertainty about whether or not he might be immune to COVID-19 to the national BOP lockdown. And still, he was so focused on the well-being of everyone out here. He was very worried about me, whether I was getting enough rest, whether he was bothering me at a time that I needed to be talking with other clients. He was worried for the protesters suffering at the hands of law enforcement and the black and brown people trying to live their lives under a regime of daily violence and indignity. He expressed so much love for the people agitating for an end to white supremacy. Racism is the poison at the heart of America, he said. Everybody knows it, and this is the conversation we need to have. Marius is an example of someone suffering unduly at the hands of a government that was more interested in punishing him under the rubric of terrorism than in ending the atrocities against the environment that he has spent his life trying to correct. And now, once again, he is watching the state manufacture an imaginary threat, Antifa. No matter that Trump lacks any authority to designate Antifa a terrorist threat in any legally meaningful way, his announcement will function to broadcast to law enforcement, prosecutors, judges, and juries that they may severely punish people not only for their conduct, but for their political beliefs. Just as Marius must endure an unconscionably long sentence for actions that would otherwise have been less severely punished, we can anticipate similar state repression of many others painted with the intentionally broad brush of Antifa. The protections of the First and Fourth Amendments will lose force in the face of law enforcement and prosecutors invoking the specter 
of the terrorist at the gate. The deeply racist and anti-Semitic discourse of the white outside agitator will authorize the same kinds of outrageous prosecutions and draconian sentences that Marius was and is now subject to. We must gather together in solidarity and make clear. Our speech will not be chilled. Our actions will not be quelled. Our righteous anger and commitments to justice will not be diminished by these bullies and these laughable claims about our beliefs. Our communities are strong. We fight for and stand with each other in a genuinely anti-racist, gender-inclusive, class and ability-conscious coalition. This is the conversation we need to have. Maria stands with all oppressed people and the political uprisings that represent them, from Stonewall to Black Lives Matter to concerted anti-fascist action, Marius sends deep revolutionary love and solidarity. Shaka Shakur, longtime Indiana political prisoner who is now incarcerated at Sussex One State Prison in Virginia, called in and recorded this message about the recent uprisings in the wake of George Floyd's murder. My name is Shaka Shakur, prisoner and prison activist in the state of Virginia. Uh, this is a piece that I put together for the Committee for Freedom that we just recently reestablished, uh, CFF that we trying to uh, get off the ground. We want to push this campaign in solidarity with what's going on in the streets right now around George Floyd, as well as the police killing uh, unarmed people of color in general and poor people as well. And here it is, title We Too. Quote, first quote is, there should either be slavery or voluntary servitude unless duly convicted of a crime. 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. We as prisoners held chapters in one of the United States' many modern-day plantations wish to stand in solidarity with our people as they protest the systemic racism and genocide perpetrated by the United States security forces and criminal injustice system. As our people march and protest in righteous anger and rage throughout the country, we not only want to add our voices in unity, we also want to say we too. We too are often murdered and lynched in the streets by the U.S. security forces and throughout its prison system and its rule to suicide or natural causes. We too are often lynched in the bias and racist courtrooms throughout America as we are railroaded into the prison industrial complex. We too are systematically harvested from our communities, the families, the fed into the prison industrial complex in the interest of big business and privatization and social control. We too are often the first to be sentenced to death, either literally or figuratively, to a slow death of an outrageous amount of years. We too are the victims of racist attacks and beatings while unarmed or handcuffed behind our back by racist guards or strike teams and it's covered up. We too are subjected to white supremacist gangs and militias hiding in plain sight behind badges, prison guard uniforms, and as prison administrators. We too are subjected to the planet of evidence, the filing of false reports, slash charges, and thereby extending our sentence without any checks and balances or oversight. We too are subjected to decades of solitary confinement without due process or penological justification. We too are the first to be denied parole or clemency for decades, no matter how many programs we have completed and in spite of meeting the criteria. We too are denied preventable health care and allowed to die and suffer due to official indifference. We too, in the midst of a pandemic that is sweeping the country and ravaging the prison system, are also being denied C-19 testing. We too are being denied serious consideration for early release or pardons based on the color of our skin and what city or community we come from or based on our politics or religious beliefs. 
We too are here and feel your pain because your pain is our pain. And we stand united in the solidarity with you because prison lives matter as black lives matter. Hashtag we too. All power to the people who fight for it. ICE detainees in California went on hunger strike in solidarity with the nationwide uprising. This is their collective statement. Quote, We, the detained people of dormitories A, B, and C at Mesa Verde ICE detention facility, are protesting an on-hunger strike in solidarity with the detained people at Ote Mesa Detention Center. We begin our protest in memory of our comrades George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Oscar Grant, and Tony McDade. Almost all of us have suffered through our country's corrupt and racist criminal justice system before being pushed into the hands of ICE. We are protesting the deaths of our comrades, Carlos Mejia, who died in ICE custody at Ote Mesa, and Chongwun An, our friend who died in ICE custody at this detention center. We are protesting the inadequate medical care in all ICE detention facilities. We are also protesting the lies that ICE has told in court to federal and immigration judges about the conditions of these facilities. What they have done is not nearly enough to prevent the coronavirus from endangering us, and we demand instant relief from these conditions. It is impossible to practice social distancing within this facility, and ICE and GeoGroup's practices are not protecting us from the virus. We will continue our protest until further attention is brought to these conditions, and until the governor and the attorney general of California begin an official investigation into all ICE detention facilities in California." Unquote. Out of fear that solidarity protests would spread throughout the federal prison system, the Bureau of Prisons has kept its facilities on lockdown for almost two weeks. This is the first nationwide lockdown since 1995, when prisoners rose up across the country in response to racist drug sentencing laws. Demonstrators have forced police to flee a precinct and six square blocks of downtown Seattle. Defended by thousands of participants, it is now called the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ. Popular assemblies now occur twice daily, and multiple free canteens are feeding the residents of the zone. Among other demands, the CHAZ is calling for amnesty for all arrested demonstrators. Thousands have been arrested across the country, with many still in jail and facing serious felonies for alleged participation in clashes, self-defense, looting, and destruction of corporate and police property. 31 people are facing charges in Indianapolis, primarily from the rebellion on May 29th and 30th. Elsewhere in Indiana, at least three young people are facing charges for allegedly inciting a riot at an Evansville Walmart. Walmart is the largest private employer of African Americans who are overwhelmingly paid poverty-level wages. And now we have Nicole Siegel with her piece, Reject Reform. This is me, Cole Siegel, reading a piece that I composed along with several other comrades about what we're witnessing right now. I'm writing as the nation ignites with protest against police brutality again. This time, the loss is a Minnesota man named George Floyd. As I join in the protests of Floyd's tragic death, I dare to hope that this time they might spark real and meaningful change. My research and writing on the myths that sustain policing have convinced me that in order for this to happen, we need to shift our focal point. We must focus on the relationship between police and state violence. We must understand that they are one and the same, distinguished only by levels of scale. Police are the arm of the state that realizes the core principle of state power, the ability to distribute legitimate violence. That is, 
the state can make exceptions to certain truths we claim to hold to be self-evident, such as the fact that all men are created equal and that they are endowed with certain inalienable rights, including the right to life. The police are the people who inflict the state of exception on those whom it deems unworthy of those rights. As things now stand in America, they get the deadly last word. What that means is that in order to be effective, the demands protesters make need to move towards a world without police. Demands must be a part of a simple, stepwise process that can destabilize and undermine racial capitalism and the state form it requires. It's easy to distinguish reforms that legitimate police from reforms that undermine them. What follows is my personal checklist, evaluating a variety of possible policy changes people are now widely discussing. I want to show systematically why reforms are not the answer. Civilian review boards, no. Oversight systems are nothing new and don't work. Various forms of these bodies have existed across the United States since the civil rights movement began demanding them in the 1950s. They have little real power, move notoriously slowly, are never granted enough resources, and police departments routinely ignore their recommendations, as the Minneapolis Civilian Review Authority did for years. Revamping the process, renaming the body, and reconstituting its members and procedures solved nothing. What citizen oversight accomplishes is a re-legitimization of police violence and a distracting, endless, trivial process of tinkering with the details of reform. Community policing, no. This idea has a history not unlike that of citizen review boards in that it was created as a response to protest and has existed now for decades. It hasn't done what protesters hoped and it has strengthened police legitimacy. People love the idea of community, a word for a utopian idea of togetherness, the exact opposite of the essential police function of extracting individuals deemed expendable from the social body. Community policing is, therefore, an oxymoron. What this benign-sounding euphemism actually does is draw resources away from social service programs that help people and legitimate the work police do overall. It neither reduces crime nor makes communities safer. As Philip McHarris puts it, time has shown that community policing is merely an expensive attempt at public relations after a long history of racialized police violence and injustice and does little to reduce crime or police violence. Police accountability, no. This usually means prosecuting police officers who offend community mores, putting them in jail. It does feel good to think about those evil men suffering as so many of our friends and neighbors have suffered, but it won't prevent abuse in the future, in part because it will, once again, legitimate the system by suggesting justice was actually done in one case. Advocating for police prosecution results from a poverty of imagination, a situation in which prison is assumed to be the only option for punishment or consequence. But we won't solve police abuse by strengthening mass incarceration. There are two branches of the same machine, state violence. The racist criminal legal system is not the answer to racist policing. No justice, no peace, prosecute police, hopes for too little. The chant focuses on a few exceptional police in the criminal legal system that is itself a critical support of police labor. It strengthens the criminal legal system by legitimizing it as the solution to the problem it has helped create. Even no justice, no peace by itself implies that prosecuting George Floyd's killers might constitute justice. Protesters in the Bronx refuse this chant with inspiring abolitionist spirit. 
This is from a flyer distributed in the Bronx for the protests there. The following chants are banned in the Bronx. This is what democracy looks like. No justice, no peace, no racist police. And then the flyer goes on to add, and if you're not from the Bronx, please abstain from whose streets, our streets, indigenous folks from this land are exempt. And shame, shame, shame during arrest is not acceptable. Either de-arrest or keep moving. Police body cams, no. Many observers hope that finally being faced with indisputable evidence of racist police brutality will move people and systems to make real change. But bystanders' videos of Floyd's murder made no difference to George Floyd. Over the eight excruciating minutes it took Chauvin to choke Floyd to death, none of the documentarians or other witnesses were able to intervene. As We Act Radio tweeted after George Floyd's murder regarding the tendency to, to document the journalistic ethic of neutrality is quoting June Jordan. If you see the cops with a knee on my neck, at least push them off and run. Don't just film my death, throw a brick, a bottle, bust a window in the cop car. Videos provoke protest, yes. They also, however, reinforce a visual field already saturated with black death. Should we feed the hunger for titillating scenes of spectacular violence against black bodies? There's nothing new in this dynamic. From Aunt Hester to George Floyd, white US audiences have eaten this stuff up. As the cops taunt, knowing their work is to feed the hunger for such spectacle. Nothing to see, folks, nothing to see. Making black death visible is not the solution. It's part of the problem, as our friend Rasul Mawat has pointed out for years now. These unedited, realist takes are snuff films, he has argued, an apt legacy to the images of lynchings that circulated as postcards, as if a souvenir of a lovely holiday, pleasurable proof of white solidarity and power. When there's no video of a police-caused death, Moat notes, outrage is muted. When death appears on screen, everybody wants to watch. If independent footage is unproductive, how much more so is material from police body cameras? Critics have pointed out problem after problem with this material, from the low quality of its product to the ways the frame often decenters or excludes what is important, the impossibility of storing it, the ways the legally required anonymization practices render the videos unwatchable, barriers to review by external agents, and finally, simply, cops' easy ability to turn the cameras off. Yet in Indianapolis, where I was marching in protest of the death of Sean Reed, comrades chanted their hope for this strategy. We listened with dismay and didn't join in. Police demilitarization, no. I've argued this over and over again elsewhere. The notion that police are civilians while soldiers are military creates an artificial line between two kinds of violence which are actually one and the same. Police cross all the lines we expect the civilian military distinction to contain. They fight wars, use war machinery, traverse borders, work alongside soldiers abroad and at home. They are not less lethal than the military proper. When we say demilitarization, we posit a sort of pure civilian origin point for the police, as if we could go back in time to the moment when police were not violently, murderously racist. Disarm the police, yes. This is what we mean when we say demilitarization, I suspect. But asking for disarmament rather than demilitarization keeps us from reinforcing the notion that police are civilian. Fewer weapons mean less police violence, 
Police without guns would not have saved George Floyd, but they might have helped the other person whose name has been on protesters' lips this past week, Breonna Taylor, and many others. Police without tanks, helicopters, tear gas, stun grenades? Yes, indeed, that would be a positive step. Defund the police, yes. Less money in police budgets means fewer weapons, fewer police, less propaganda, and more for care work, health care, education, income support. Demand that PDs be defunded so as to support coronavirus patients and people affected economically by the pandemic quarantine. The Minneapolis City Council's recent resolution to dismantle the MPD is striking. Even if some of the institutions we fund are themselves avenues of social control, this is a positive step. Divert. Diminish the police, yes. Shrink PDs back to the size they were before the 1960s, when the federal government, responding to fears of communism and black protest, created the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration to fund state-level policing. Or before. The closer we get to zero, the more we will create other ways of solving social harm. We have a matchless opportunity right now. Something about this moment, precarity, pandemic, racist terror and economic reopening, has meant that people are once again fighting back against what has been a steady drumbeat of racial violence throughout American history. Not accidental, then, that these upsurges take the form of circulation struggles, blockades, and riots. These are reasonable responses for people who have been marginalized, reasonable ways to claim circulatory or commercial space to make room to mourn and manifest, reasonable to loot the behemoth, Minneapolis target, reasonable to set the streets ablaze. The most fertile experiments are occurring at the intersections of building and fighting in a patient abolitionist procedure also referred to as destitution by Giorgio Agamben. The stepwise process we are undertaking must not only shrink police departments but also expand communal capacities to heal trauma and provide for shared needs, thus eliminating dependencies on racial capitalism and the violent organs of its state. Inside Seattle's Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, demonstrators are not just holding off police, they're experimenting with popular assemblies, collective forms of care, and imaginative ways to prevent social harm. Community gardens are sprouting up, precisely in those South Minneapolis neighborhoods which saw the strongest revolts. History must guide these innovations, including the baseline recognition that state violence requires genocide, often at the hands of the police. We cannot allow ourselves to be surprised. We must build, 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 tend our gardens, children, chicks. The better to defeat the structures that destroy us and to work instead towards creating the world we want. Please keep sharing the number for our coronavirus hotline. We'll continue to air messages from prisoners who call in from the inside and family members calling in for support for their loved ones. You can call in on behalf of a loved one, or they can call in to record their message about the impact of the coronavirus on their facility at 765-343-6236. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. 
For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.